word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that when you save us, you draw us into what you're doing in the world. Lord Jesus, you not only renew us, but you make us part of what you're doing. Take us deeper in that. That we would do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. We pray that, and we pray that you would teach us now in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I invite you to pick up a Bible and turn to page 940. It's Romans 3, page 940. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of those Bibles and just have it. We're doing a series on sin and salvation. And uh, let me say this too. It's just fun to be back. I was away for a while. It's good to be home and with you guys. Love you. Good to see you. I'm excited about this sermon. Check out this artwork on the front. This is from someone in our church, Julia Sweeson, and it's artwork about the series, which John Alexander helpfully outlaid for us. The series is called Sin and Salvation, and we're looking each week at a different aspect of how sin wrecks us, and Jesus saves us. Sin and salvation. For instance, sin and slaves. The gospel frees us. Jesus frees. Sin contaminates. Jesus cleanses. Sin corrupts. Jesus glorifies. This week, we're going to look at how sin brings condemnation. Jesus brings justification. Condemnation, we go from condemnation to justification. What is that? See, the gospel is like a diamond, and we're looking at different facets of how God saves us in Jesus. Now, and I'm talking about condemnation. This is who this is going to apply to. Anyone who's felt shame or guilt or remorse about something you've done. If you've ever done something and felt really ashamed about it and felt really guilty about it afterwards, and it's basically a universal experience, right? It's basically everybody. Hopefully that's everybody. Because actually, if, if you're like, that actually, I, that doesn't describe me at all. That's never happened to me. That's scary. We have a word for that. When people feel no remorse at all, uh, it's called being criminally insane, <laughs> right? And we have experts examine them. Are, can we try them in a regular court because he doesn't feel any remorse? How scary is that? It's a universal experience, this feeling of condemnation, shame, and guilt. It's like a pain in the shoulder. Uh, when I get a pain in my so- shoulder, I say two things. I say, yeah, I'm not... 25. Yep, that's what that means. I'm also like, some, I did something wrong. The pain tells you something's wrong. What did I do? In the same way, that guilt is like a pain in the soul that something's wrong. Something's wrong. Wrong has been done to our soul and often to others. Guilt is like a spiritual pain that tells us something important. It's actually very necessary. And God invites us to release joy, love, forgiveness, but he's realistic about the pain. He's realistic about the, feel, the shame, the guilt. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to swoop in mid-argument. Now, the letter to Romans, to the, Rome, to the church in Rome, it's long. Okay, So you've got to know we are parachuting in in the middle of 
a long extended sermon and presentation and I'm going to try to orient us a little bit but we're parachuting in and we're going to start at chapter 3 verse 9 Romans 3 verse 9 page 940 in the Bibles follow along what then are we Jews any better off no not at all for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written no one is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus then what becomes of our boasting it is excluded by what kind of law by law of works no but by the law of faith for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law this is God's word now a lot going on there we're gonna break it down section by section it as I said before it, we're swooping in mid-argument and he, he's basically been saying is there any advantage in being Jewish is there advantage being Jewish in one way yes and one way no in one way yes earlier in chapter 3 is there advantage to being Jewish much in every way to begin with Jews uh, were entrusted with the oracles of God they received God's revelation they had the prophets but in an important way no and he makes this point both Jews and Greeks are quote under sin he basically says okay Jews and Greeks that's everybody there's Jew, he's basically saying Jews and non-Jews this is the universal human condition everyone is under sin and he says did you notice this in verse 23 for there is no distinction all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and since this is a logical argument I'm just going to line it out in points and there's four points this is the first point about the default sinful condition of humanity the default sinful condition of humanity it's you me along with everyone is one of unrighteousness the default sinful condition of people is one of unrighteousness which means left to ourselves we will be headed 
to a fair condemnation before God. Now, let me explain this. Uh, this does mean, this is legal language intentionally. It's saying that God is the proper judge, God is the just judge, God is, as creator has right to evaluate his creation and the people made in his image. This means that we all and every human being that has ever lived will give account of our lives to God. We will stand before God. People sense that. And we have a problem. What is it to be righteous? What is it to be righteous? Well, righteousness means to be right with the law. It means there's no claim. In a restaurant, you might say to a friend, hey, I went up with the, to the cashier. I made it right. We can go. What's that mean? It means you settled up. You paid the bill. There's no obligation anymore. So to be righteous according to God, to be right with God, it means you would be in the condition of complete obedience to not owe God anything because you have fulfilled it all. You, it means to be in a state where there is no obligation whatsoever. You've been completely obedient, and it's the positive obligations you've done. So when it was right to love, you loved. When it was right to share, you shared. When it was right to serve, you served. Uh, that's to love others as you would want to be loved, right? It's to love your neighbors you would, as you love yourself. And it means you haven't done the negative obligations. When faced with an opportunity to covet, you didn't. When faced with an opportunity to lust, you didn't lust. So to be right with the law is to be perfectly obedient so that there is no charge. And it's legal language, which means the righteous are free and the unrighteous are guilty. And the default sinful condition of humanity is one of unrighteousness. And the, the argument before this means that God is a just judge and it means that the default sinful condition left to ourselves will be headed towards actually a fair condemnation. Now, is Paul picking on people? Is he just being mean? And the Apostle Paul is the guy who wrote this. He's not, and this is how. He's, he's speaking about everybody and if you've read any of his other writings, he includes himself in this group. He's not picking on a certain group. It's not just the Gentiles, which just means the people from the nations, but the church people too. The conscientious moral Jews he puts in that group that everybody, including himself, even the conscientious and moral, the quote-unquote good people, are under sin. And he quotes some psalms to make his case. Now, this is on the top of page 941. When he says, no one is righteous, no, not one, that little section, he quotes Psalm 14, 1 through 3. And he's basically saying our legal standing before God, the default setting is one of guilt. All have guilt, all will be judged, all apart from the mercy of God or in a guilty state. Now, you, you might ask, okay, So God wants to crush my self-esteem. Thank you. Really grateful for the sermon already. Um, what about all the good that people do? What about the good that people do? How does that factor in? This extreme statement, no one is righteous, no, not one. What about the good things? 
look, people do good things. It doesn't mean that some people don't do a lot more sinning than others and hurt a lot more people. It doesn't mean that people don't do good, but he's saying we don't do good in a saving way. And he's saying there is no distinction. All the sin and fall short of the glory of God. This is actually an old sermon illustration. I'm going to that's uh, been used by many different people in different ways. I'm going to change some of the details for us. Imagine that every citizen of America was forced at the Jersey shoreline to attempt to swim to England. Everybody. What would happen? Some people die in six feet of water, right? Some people die in sight of the beach. They're terrible at swimming. They're just awful. They drowned. Some people... They make it out there, right? They're miles out there. Maybe the really good swimmers, tens of miles. The world record, uh, looked it up, after 50 hours of constant swimming, a Croatian guy named Velcho Rokozic in 2006, he swam 139 miles. Amazing, right? What's the point of the illustration? Everybody drowns. Everybody dies. No one makes it. The gap is too much. So when you're like, look, aren't those some people good? Some people are good swimmers. Some people are really great swimmers. They are. But no one, with that gap, everyone is going to fall short. And not just short, woefully short. And part of what, what happens, what that... But when we say, what about the good that people do what we're dumbing down a little bit is the standard the standard is god's beauty his perfection his holiness his goodness what love really leads to and what our struggle was saying but aren't we good i do good gosh darn it i try hard at least most tuesdays what we're what we're not understanding is the gap and the scriptures tell us this hard news. Because of the gap between us and a holy God, everyone falls short. And, and so woefully short, another famous illustration, the sinful human beings arguing about who's good are like grains of sand on the beach arguing about who's closest to the moon. We're all going to miss the mark. Now, and the Apostle Paul riffs on all these psalms. There are a bunch of psalms together to show that this unrighteous state has played out in all the parts of our lives. This unrighteousness, sin affects our minds, motives, behavior, and relationships. That's the second point. Sin affects our minds, motives, behavior, and relationships. It affects us all over. And so when you say, well, God preacher guy this sounds awful you're saying that in my in and of myself god would condemn me yes and it's only because of how sinful human beings like myself only because minds motives behavior and relationships only because of how you think why you think that what you do and how it affects everybody only that only all of our life okay and we tend to think of sin as just like you know what once in a while just barely step over the line like you might have rolled through a stop sign on the way here you know not a big deal god's really uptight 
uh, he's in this intense traffic cop. No, think of sin as this inward moral deformity that depairs us, impairs us. We can't even see ourselves. So when he says no one seeks God, you're like, okay, overstatement. A lot of people seek God. They seek enlightenment, answers, power. You're like, I'm here, and you're yelling at me. Stop. I'm, I'm seeking. Hey, I'm really glad you're seeking. We invite everyone to seek. I encourage people to seek. But what this is saying, even in our seeking, it's tweaked with sin. It's polluted a little bit, a lot of times a lot, because what do we want from God? We want what God can give us. Will you give us, me some answer prayers, some health, a happier life? some fulfillment, some purpose, some peace. Even in our seeking, and those are good things to seek, but it's not 100% pure, right? When we're honest, we want... Is it that we want to be in a deep love relationship with God just because of who He is? Not as much as don't we want what God can give us? Can't we agree that even our seeking has been tweaked by selfishness? It's the same thing here about doing good. So the, when it says, all together they have become worthless, in the context of Psalm 14, it's the good deeds have become worthless. So how do good deeds become worthless? You help an old lady across the street, right? Classic good deed. You're, such, you're so good. And in our hearts, what does a piece of us want to do? Take selfies the whole time so we can Facebook it to all of our friends. And you're like, I never do that, actually. You think inwardly to yourself, but it would be awesome if somebody else would. And even what's hard is that we'll do good, but is it for God's glory and the good of others perfectly, 100%, down to the depths of our soul? Or is it so that others will think we're good or even sneakier, so we ourselves will think we're good. It's important to me to think I'm good, and doggone it, I'm the guy who helps the old lady. You see how tricky we are? And it affects our behavior. Your mouth is a faucet for your soul. That's why you say crazy stuff. Why, he says, he quotes some other Psalms, Psalms 5 and 10. The venom of poisonous steaks is under our lips our mouth is full of curses and bitterness why do you sometimes say crazy mean things i read this yesterday in the gospel of luke jesus said out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks why do we all struggle with sometimes saying crazy mean stuff it's a window to our soul and what's there is dark What's in our heart is dark. Your mouth is a faucet for your soul. What comes out is, is black. Is black. It's dark. And this affects our relationships. This is why what happens in the kindergarten room and in the nursery room happens on the international stage. People don't tend to share and play nice. And internationally, that means war. In the nursery, it means tears. And that's the human heart. And so we're, as Christians, we're heartbroken over war. I'm heartbroken over what's happening in South Sudan. It really saddens me. There's a civil war going on. And before we get self-righteous about that, I'm like, why don't you guys just get it together? Let's not forget we had one of those. Remember what that was about? 
as Christians, we're heartbroken over war, but we shouldn't be surprised. This guy named C.E.M. Jode, who was a philosopher in Britain that had a famous radio show. Um, he wasn't a Christian when he led the radio show. He was just this witty, articulate philosopher. And they would talk about current events. They would talk about pacifism and war. And he was always the, the brightest guy on the show. He became very popular. He returned to the Christian faith later in life. And right before he died, he died in 1953. In 1952, he wrote a book about returning to faith. And it was called The Recovery of Belief. And he says this, quote, it was because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being disappointed, disappointed by the refusal of people to be reasonable, disappointed by the failure of true socialism to arrive, by the behavior, by the behavior of nations and politicians, and above all, by the recurrent fact of war. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised. This is the human heart. Our relationships are affected, and yes, our relationship with God. And the Bible makes this case, not, not to like destroy our self-esteem, but so, so we'll see our need for Jesus. And that's the third point. The third point is you can't justify yourself by works. You can't. Uh, your default sinful condition merits a deserved condemnation from God. You can't work yourself out of that. You can't save yourself. You can't heal your own soul. You can't atone for yourself. Look at verse 19 and 20. Then we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of, law, of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And what he's saying is, knowing what the right thing to do is, the law, isn't enough to save you because we don't have the power to perfectly carry that out. And so knowing actually what God requires, knowing what he requires isn't enough to save you. It's, it's a mirror. The law is a mirror, and it shows you the dirt on your face. It doesn't make you beautiful. Now, uh, why does it say every mouth must be stopped? It's because our self-justifying speech needs to end. It's, you might be thinking, okay, this, this, this apostle and Huber up there, they, he thinks he has the ministry of hurting people's feelings. No. The apostle wants people to see this so that they'll see their need for Christ. And, and so faithful Bible teaching will deliver this hard news so that you're hungry for the good news of what Jesus has done. A guy who did this faithfully is a guy by the name of John Gerstner. He, he was a Presbyterian minister. He ministered for most of his life in western Pennsylvania. So our state, he was a church history professor at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He was the leading authority on Jonathan Edwards. He was in the world. Uh, he, he died in 1996. So not that long ago. A leading scholar known as kind and gentle you're just a kind man. Um, but his teaching would have this effect on people. There's a famous story. He preached at this kind of well-to-do Presbyterian church in Pittsburgh. And uh, a lady came up to him afterwards, and she was upset. 
She said, your sermon, pastor, made me feel about this big. And John Gerstner lovingly looked her in the eye and said, I'm really sorry to hear that. But if in your own strength before God you feel this big, that's actually way too big. And what was he trying to do? What was, what was his attempt there? To get her to see her need for Jesus. Don't we all knew that? need that? This is a quote from John Gershner. All you need is nothing. See, all you need is to admit your need. But alas, quote, sinners cannot part with their virtues. They have none that are not imaginary, but they are real to them. So grace becomes unreal. The real grace of God they spurn in order to hold on to the illusory virtues of their own. Their eyes are fixed on a mirage. They will not drink real water. They die of thirst with water all about them. And so part of the ministry of John Gerstner was for people to see in and of themselves their guilt before God that they would cling to Jesus. And uh, lest you think that this is just some, he was actually a little bit, uh, he happened to be a shorter man in stature. I remember meeting him, actually, when I was younger. I was about as tall as he was. Unless you think he's just this, like, short, mean man, this is a guy who one time stood before the pulpit, another famous John Gerstner story, before a well-to-do church, and said, I am an adulterer. I am a, an idolater. I am a coveter. I am a liar. Now, had he literally slept with another person's wife? No. But he is honest enough. He was being honest. The spirit of the law, that counts when you just look on a woman lustfully. He was saying, he was, he was a man who was looked up to for being godly, and he was saying, don't you see, I need Jesus, and you do too? You can't justify yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't bring yourself out of this guilty state before God. And the answer is this last point, which is super plain. Point four. Point four is this. All can be justified by His grace as a gift. So we read it, starting with verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It means... Revelation history has been leading up to this. Law and the prophets. That's a way to sum up the whole Bible up to this point has been pointing forward to the work of Jesus and what we have in Him. Next verse. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So point four, all can be justified by his grace as a gift. What is it to be justified? It's to be made righteous. Interesting factoid, the verb justify is just the verb form of the noun righteous, righteousness. Justify is to be made righteous. And what Jesus does in the gospel is makes those who believe in him righteous forever in God's sight. 
righteous in God's sight. So we go from the state of being guilty before God to the state of being righteous. We go from the state of being unrighteous to being righteous in God's sight, as if we perfectly obeyed, as if we didn't sin, as if we didn't do the wrong things. And the positive righteousness, the positive righteousness of Jesus. Uh, it's, this language is used later in Romans chapter 4. It will be counted to us who believe in him. The righteousness of God, think of it as a bank. All of a sudden, you know, you go to the, um, for some of us going to the ATM, it's like opening a fortune cookie. Like, what will happen today? It's fun. Let's see what the numbers are. And you go, and instead of a negative account, there's a positive The righteousness of Jesus is counted to us. Now, important things to note. This is a gift. You didn't earn it. It's a gift that comes by grace. Grace, again, means you didn't earn it. And it's by faith. Now, first on how it works, and then why it's by faith. First on how it works, there's this word propitiation. Now, obviously translators try to pick words that people normally use when they translate the Bible. That way you can understand it. Sometimes there's a concept that is so important they have to use an exotic word. This is one of those times. The word propitiation means a sacrifice that turns away judgment. A propitiation is a sacrifice that absorbs judgment. And the scripture is saying something about what happens on the cross. Why is the cross important? The cross is important because in it we see God is both the just judge and the merciful savior. God is both just and merciful. He's just, he hates sin and everything that leads to tears and all the horror of the world and all the lack of love in every way that sin has poisoned everything. He really does hate that more. He hates that with a perfect hatred. And he's going to punish it. He's going to deal with it. And yet he's merciful. He pays that bill himself. John Stott put it this way. The biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself. And so the cross of Jesus, we see God's justice. He had to punish sin, but we see his mercy. Justice and mercy meet at the cross. And we receive that through faith. Now, there's a lot of confusion about